Well, please do uh, grab your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts 27 this morning, really 27 and 28. Uh, Acts 27, 39, all the way through Acts 28, 16. If you're using the blue ESV Bibles and the seatbacks out there, you can find our text on page 937. And uh, the title of uh, the sermon this morning is Rome, Sweet Rome. And the key words for our worshipers in training are land, Malta, and Rome. Two months ago, uh, I believe it was October 29th, I preached from Acts 19, where Luke first mentions, almost as if it were a throwaway thought, that the Apostle Paul wanted to go to Rome. And so for the past eight weeks, we have witnessed this seemingly off-handed comment transform into the all-consuming ambition of Paul's life. And today, we reach the long-sought-after Italian shore. Though we will have to wait one more week before we come to the full import of Paul's arrival, we do see him today get to Rome. And I want to front load some application here before saying anything else, before reading the text even. I want to say this. The book of Acts could be summarized as a long accounting of the sovereign work of God who keeps His promises. Even when it seems like that is the last thing that's happening. It may have taken us eight weeks to get from Acts 19.21 to Acts 28.14, which is where we'll see Paul get to Rome today. It took Paul several years. So, if you thought I've gone too slow through this, then just be thankful I didn't uh, take it at the pace at which The Lord took Paul. Right? When Paul resolved in his spirit and in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, and then he said, and after that I must also see Rome, he was still in Ephesus. The riot at Ephesus had not yet occurred. Paul had not yet been driven from Ephesus to winter in Greece for three months. Eutychus had not yet died and then been resuscitated at Paul's hands. Paul had not yet said his heart-wrenching goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. The elders from Ephesus at Miletus. No one had yet attempted to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem, telling him that danger was lurking. He had not yet agreed with James that he would join the brothers in their purification rite in order not to be a stumbling block to believing Jews, only to have the unbelieving Jews use that very act as a pretense to beat him nearly to death. He had not yet been arrested by Lysias. He had not yet been left in prison for two years by Felix. He had not yet appeared before Festus or Agrippa. And of course, he had not yet been placed on a ship that was doomed to run aground after the miscalculations of the crew. And yet, through it all, God was surely, 
if not quickly, moving Paul to his intended destination. Several times through this account, from Acts 19 to 28, Paul is reminded that God is bringing him to Rome. And that really just plays into the bigger picture of God fulfilling his promise that Jesus had made to his apostles in Acts 1. That the Spirit would come upon them and empower them to bear witness to the Christ to the ends of the earth. And so God is a promise-keeping God, and that is one of the main things that we learn from the book of Acts. And so today, when we join Paul, we're rejoining Paul after a two-week storm at sea. He and the crew had been left badly uh, beaten and bruised. They were praying for daylight, waiting for land. Paul had received an answer to prayer. And yet, despite the fact that he nor in, neither he nor any of the other crew members or prisoners or soldiers would be lost in the storm, the ship was a goner. And so they're waiting for daylight when we join them here in Acts 27 looking for a place to run the ship aground so they can reboot. So let's read these verses. Acts 27, beginning in verse 39. I'll read uh, through Acts 28, 16. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and uh, remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius. He received us and who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that after the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. 
And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to uh, Petoli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for several days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. I want to take up this text in three parts with you this morning. First, in verses 33 through 44 of chapter 27... We'll consider the shipwreck and their arrival on land. In verses 1 to 10 of chapter 28, we'll see what happened on the shores of this unknown land. And then finally, in verses 16, or 11 through 16 of chapter 28, we'll consider Paul's arrival and reception in Rome. So look with me in the first place, verses 39 to 44 chapter 27, where we see Paul and company brought safely, if not comfortably, to land. The daylight for which the men waited finally comes in verse 39. Though it only brings mild comfort, since not recognizing the land, they they don't know where they are. They do, nevertheless, form a plan to run the ship aground on what appeared to be a rather accessible beach. And yet, Luke tells us, that they strike a reef or perhaps a sandbar instead. So the ship is not going to make it to the island. But they can't stay on the ship for long, Luke tells us, because the surf is breaking it up from the rear. The, the ship would be dashed to pieces before long, and so it's time to abandon ship. The soldiers, however, fearing the judgment that they might face if they were to let any prisoner escape, they form a plan without orders to kill all of the prisoners. Dead prisoners are better than escaped ones. Dead prisoners are better than prisoners on the lamb, and so they plan to kill them all. But the Lord intervenes through Julius, and we've seen him, um, though perhaps certainly not a perfect man, he was eager to show kindness to Paul on multiple occasions. And so for Paul's sake, Julius stops the soldiers from the murderous plot, and he tells all, if you can swim, make it to shore. And if you can't, try to ride it out on broken pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. We'll come back to make some applications in a bit. But I want to move on. That's the first thing. We have the shipwreck. Now they're on land in Acts 28.1. The second place then in these first 10 verses, we see what happened on this island. Luke tells us that they were brought safely through. They washed up on shore and learned they were on Malta. 
And unlike what you might expect, seemingly unlike what Luke expected, he notes that the people there showed them unusual kindness. They welcomed them. They built a fire for them since it was cold and rainy. Now, we would be wrong to assume that Luke intends to convey um, the Maltese here as um, usually barbaric people. They were just unfamiliar with the Greek language. Um, But nevertheless, you arrive on an island that you don't know. You might expect the residents to possibly be hostile to strangers. But nevertheless, the kindness that they receive is noteworthy. Because they don't, in fact, attack them in any way, but they show them great hospitality. They built this fire, or perhaps even several fires. There were quite a a number of them. But they've given them warmth and shelter. And Paul attempts to play his part. He goes to add some wood to the fire, and a viper emerges from the wood and fastens onto his hand. Now we'll go ahead and say there's no little debate over this snake. What kind of snake was it? Was it actually venomous? There aren't venomous snakes on Malta today. Did it even bite Paul or just wrap around his hand? Here's the thing. Luke was not a herpetologist, nor was he attempting to catalog the snake for the Society of Amphibians and Reptiles. Now, that does not mean that These are not interesting questions about the snake, or certainly that Luke was in any way incorrect in what he wrote, far from it. But we do need to make sure that we don't miss Luke's point here, the broader point in the midst of all of these very modern scientific questions with some very specific types of cataloging and um, naming uh, these creatures. Here's Luke's intent seems to be something very much like this. He wants to communicate to his reader that Paul's encounter with this snake gave the islanders legitimate concern that he was going to die, or at least become violently ill, from which they draw this conclusion. No doubt this man is a murderer. He has escaped the sea But justice has caught up with him. Justice has not allowed him to live. And yet, despite a reasonable concern for Paul's life, Paul neither became swollen, nor died, nor suffered any deleterious effects. And so, they immediately changed their minds and assumed that he was, in fact, not a murderer, but a god instead. In other words... Paganism, though hospitable at times, is still quite fickle and cannot make sense of the world in which God made. It's quite the 180. Paul's a murderer. Paul's a god. It has echoes of Paul's experience, though in reverse, when he was at Lystra back in Acts 14. Remember there, Paul was hailed as a god and then nearly stoned to death. On Malta, he's assumed to be a murderer and then hailed as a god. Luke doesn't tell us anything else about this exchange here, though. He just moves on. He tells 
about Paul's miraculous healing of uh, the, the island's chief, uh, his father. So Publius's dad was sick, had fever, dysentery. Paul healed him, healed many others. And then they were sent off quite pleasantly. It's interesting what Luke includes here. Perhaps it's more interesting what he doesn't include. He doesn't say anything of Paul's reaction to being called a murderer. He doesn't say anything of Paul's reaction to being hailed as a god. He doesn't say anything about Paul attempting to evangelize the islanders. But if we think about it for a moment, don't don't we know exactly what Paul would have thought about these things? Haven't we been with this apostle long enough to know what Paul would have done on his three-month stay in Malta? Could we not just copy and paste what he had said to those at Lystra, perhaps? Say again the things that he had said repeatedly to others in other places, in other cities, in other towns? Right, the point here isn't to tell us again that Paul would object to being hailed as a deity. He's already done that plainly in Lystra. And of course he would have done that here. What Luke is doing he is detailing the sovereignty of God for us in important ways. The point of the story is that God runs the world. And he brings even paganism and its miscalculations into his perfect service. God is bringing Paul to Rome. He has made that emphatically clear. And he is continuing to care for Paul every step of the way. Even through a group of pagans with a clearly miscalculated understanding of justice. The entire Malta narrative is couched in the unusual kindness that Paul received. They received kindness from beginning to end. They were treated with kindness when they arrived, shown hospitality while they were there, and they were given honor and whatever they needed when they left. Perhaps it's, a, it's, a, it's just a small ray of sunshine, an otherwise pretty dark and bleak trip. God knows His man and His people, and He extends through these Maltese a kindness. So regardless of Malta's view of Paul and the rest of his traveling companions, regardless of their view of him before the snake bite, after the snake bite, after his survival, the point is from Luke is that Paul is neither criminal nor divine. He is merely in the hands of the faithful God who has given him a mission and bringing him to the mission's end. Imagine, Luke, you're, uh, Paul, you're going to Rome. Paul, you're going to Rome. Paul, you're going to Rome. Oh, except for this snake. You've made it so close. Another thing that is interesting is Luke doesn't mention Paul's evangelistic efforts here. And, and again, I think that's, it's mostly because the, the point is to help us to see God bringing Paul to Rome rather than to focus on exactly what, what Paul does here because he really only includes these two encounters. But it is worth noting that even though Luke doesn't mention Paul's evangelistic efforts, 
church history generally understands that that is exactly what happened here. Um, Malta has enjoyed an overwhelming adherence to, we'll call it at least Christianity. It's worth noting that today Malta is predominantly Roman Catholic. But it's worth noting because whatever corruptions may have come upon the island since Paul's departure, it has had a Christian identity that owes its origin, according to church history, to Paul's three-month stay on Malta. And so God uses the Maltese to minister to Paul, and He uses Paul to minister to them. And then they're sailing for Rome. Look at me in the third place, verses 11 to 16, where you see Paul's arrival, his reception in Rome. Paul and company, if you recall, they left Crete sometime um, at the, in the middle or possibly even the end of October, maybe even the very beginning of November. That means it could have been as late as mid or the end of November, probably mid-November when they reached Malta. At the latest. If they stayed on Malta for three months, um, three months and some change, it would have been middle or end of February when they began to sail for Italy. Now, March was generally the time frame in which sailing would recommence. But late February, in some years, proved warm and calm enough to begin sailing. And so Luke tells us that they set off on another ship, one from Alexandria, one that had beaten Paul to Malta and had wintered there. And then he includes this note in verse 11. It had the twin gods as a figurehead. Perhaps this is just historical recounting. He's just providing more information. Helps us to see that he's telling the truth. And yet, these twin gods, Castor and Pollux, two sons of Zeus, it's kind of an amusing image. And it makes a similar point as the one that we saw with the islanders on Malta. On Malta, the Lord used those pagans from beginning to end to care for His servant Paul, whose message left some kind of a lasting mark on that island. Here, in verse 11, we have two Greco-Roman deities. Castor and Pollux serving as chauffeurs for the Lord of Lords, bringing his emissary to Rome, whose message upended the death grip these gods had on countless people throughout the Roman Empire and the world. In other words, the Lord reigns. And so they reach Syracuse. They stay for three days before sailing to Regium. Then they sail to Patoli. At Patoli, they find brothers and they stayed with them for a week, possibly fixing something on the ship. Uh, I read maybe that the centurion was waiting orders. Uh, Whatever the case, they were there for a week. And then they come to Rome. And they're greeted again by fellow Christians who came as far, uh, who came to meet them from as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns. That's about 40 miles and 30 miles away, respectively. And that isn't a whole lot to us, but for them, that was quite a trek. And Paul is encouraged by this. 
He thanks God for the brothers, and he's allowed to stay in his own private dwelling to be guarded by one soldier. So Paul is in Rome. And again, we'll, we'll see the full import of this, Lord willing, next week. But I want to spend some time now uh, sort of in closing. It'll be sort of a lengthy section here of application. But I want to consider this text before us. Three lessons. First, as we began the sermon, Luke continues to demonstrate the sovereignty of God over all things. Consider what he writes in 2744. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Consider 2814. And so we came to Rome. God promised Paul that he would make it to Rome. He had also promised Paul that he would spare the lives of everyone on the ship. And so neither demon housing magicians nor bloodthirsty and ravenous mobs, nor well-meaning friends, nor unjust civil magistrates, nor unruly and tempestuous seas, nor an island of pagans, nor a deadly viper, nor the gods themselves could prevent the advance of God Almighty's kingdom. And so, let us, brothers and sisters, let us commit ourselves to a Pauline trust, if you will. Do we trust? Do you trust in the sovereign Lord? Will you trust Him and stay the course of obedience even when it is difficult? Will you continue to obey Christ Jesus through thick and thin knowing that your life is bigger than your life and that His kingdom is claiming citizens from every people group on earth and He has called you as individuals, as families, and he has called us as a church to play a part in the advance of that kingdom. It may not be to the degree and in the same way that he did with Paul. In fact, for any of us individually, it almost it will not be. Go ahead and take it to the bank. And yet, he still calls us to be faithful. To be faithful here with what we have in Rinkin. Even when things look grim. Imagine you're washed up on shore. Thankfully, you're not eaten alive by cannibals. They're kind to you. But then you get bitten by a snake. And everyone knows you're going to die. We don't know what Paul thought. What went through Paul's mind when he got bit? It seems to be not much at all. He shook it off and kept on going. Could he have been tempted to fear? Would you have been tempted to fear? Of course, we don't want to presume upon God's kindness, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So trust the Lord, first thing. First and foremost, continue to trust the Lord. Secondly, Christian community. The book of Acts has placed a great premium on friendship among God's people. Think back with me for a moment to the beginning of Acts. Acts 1. Jesus has told his apostles to pray and to wait, 
And what do we find them doing? Well, we find them praying and waiting. But this is what Luke writes. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It wasn't just John by himself. It wasn't just the apostles by themselves. It was the apostles with the disciples of Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 1, Luke tells us that there were about 120 of them, all gathered together in one place on the day of Pentecost, still waiting, still praying. And on that day, God added 3,000 souls to the church after the Spirit came and Peter preached the gospel in 2.41. Then in chapter 2, 42 through 47, we see that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. They took care of each other's material needs. They went to the temple together. They broke bread in their homes and God continued adding day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 4, Peter and John were arrested. They were released and they returned to their friends. 4.23 And they prayed together. And then in 4.32-37, Luke describes the deep commitment the early church had to sharing themselves with one another. No one considered any of his things belonging only to himself. And here in Acts 28, we come full circle to this. And we see once more the importance of Christian community. Paul is repeatedly encouraged by Christians on his journey from Syria to Rome. We saw this at the beginning of chapter 27, where he stopped and was refreshed by his friends in Sidon. We see it in Petoli, and we see it in Rome itself. Luke does not want us to miss the blessing that we are called to be to one another. Paul, the super-Christian, benefited from friends. Do you have friends? Do you have friends of faith? Do you have friends of faith here at Redeemer Baptist Church? Do you have friends of faith in other places? Friends that may serve to refresh you and your weary spirit. And likewise, do you have friends whom you may serve and refresh? Are you regularly looking for ways that you might be a blessing to someone in need? Think about these brothers who who came to Paul from 40 or 30 miles away. I I didn't do the math, so I don't know how long that would have taken them. But how far would you travel now? Surely 30, 40 miles to see someone like Paul. Would you go to Jacksonville or Atlanta? Would you go somewhere in Tennessee? I don't know how far we'd go, but how far are we willing to go to minister to someone in need? Not just travel distance, but how much time are you willing to spend? How early are you willing to get up? How late are you willing to go to bed? How much money are you willing to spend to care for someone who needs you? So let us trust God and let us embrace one another in friendship. And finally, our presuppositions about justice are challenged and reframed 
in this passage. Is our voice not often found in the mouths of the the molten natives? How quick are we to jump to conclusions about others who suffer? Do we see the distress of others and immediately begin to think, well, glad he's getting what he deserves. Because that's the only explanation. He's suffering, and so he must have done something wrong. Or do we reverse it and we see the blessing of others and think, well, aren't they just perfect? Are we like the multi natives, quick to assume that we live in a purely karmic universe? Good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. The islanders assumed that Paul had only been delivered from the frying pan of the fierce sea to land in the flames of the fiery serpent. And then, on a dime, they thought that he was divine because nothing bad happened to him. So they make two opposite errors here. But they're chastened for their presumptions, and so are we. Sometimes truth just takes time out. So the passage helps us to see that we shouldn't jump to hasty conclusions about the earthly conditions of others. Just because someone is suffering doesn't mean that they're under the thumb of God and that he's mad and angry at them. Just because someone is doing well doesn't mean that they are being blessed. Right? Other than the fact that God had promised Paul that he was going to go to Rome, there's nothing, no wrong would have been done to Paul if he had died from this bite of this serpent. That could have been it. And it would have been a long, faithful life in the hand of a caring and faithful God. But God had other plans for Paul, and that's why he's saved. Not because we ought to expect similar things, Don't go rummaging in the woods this afternoon on the basis of this passage and think, hey, nothing happened to Paul. I must be good too. But I want to think for a minute here in closing, for real this time, about the the importance of time and truth and the way that those things relate. If we were to look at the earthly life of Jesus we might conclude that God had judged him to be a liar or worse. Jesus was, after all, like Paul, attacked by a viper. A dragon, in fact. Revelation 12, Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Jesus was attacked by a serpent. But the blessing of time, three days to be exact, helps us to see that while God did judge Jesus, he judged him to be faithful. Not only did Jesus come back from death, But then he ascended into the presence of the Ancient of Days and sat on his throne. In the words of Revelation 12, the child who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron was caught up to God and to his throne. 
And this child, in the words of Revelation 20, will cast the serpent into the flame of death. Just like Paul did on Malta. Without overextending Luke's point here, I can't help but to see Paul and this serpent in Acts 28 without thinking of the greater Paul who was bitten by the greater serpent, but who, unlike Paul, tasted death from the bite, but then overcame death for Paul and for countless others. Securing our victory in his battle with the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan who makes war against the church even today. And so while we don't want to have a misunderstanding of the way that God's justice works in the world, we want to trust him, we want to embrace one another, and we want to give time to let God work out His perfect and good plan in the world, we can take heart now. Even when things don't look as though we think they should, we can take heart and look to Christ and receive His blessing. From Revelation 12 again, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. God has given us this word to remind us centrally that he is the sovereign Lord and works all things according to the purpose of his good and immutable will. And Lord willing, next week, we will see not just Paul arrive in Rome, as we did today, but we'll see what he did once he got there.